So today is our final day in the book of Jonah. Uh, we will be in Jonah chapter 4, the thrilling conclusion. Now, in this final sermon on Jonah, we will see the conclusion of the whole theme that hopefully Patrick and I have been pushing well throughout these four weeks, that salvation belongs to the Lord. If you remember, Jonah attempted to flee the presence of the Lord when God told him to go preach against the Ninevites. He got onto a boat, and the Lord sent a storm which threatened to capsize the boat unless the sailors threw Jonah overboard. In that chapter, Patrick taught us that fear of the Lord is not merely intellectual, but involves the whole person revealing God and submitting to his leadership. Then in chapter 2, what happened was the classic thing that we all know Jonah by, right? He got swallowed by a fish and prayed to God within the fish. He understood within that fish that salvation belongs to the Lord and that God alone has the power to save. Now, last week, we saw Jonah finally obeying the Lord's command, going to Nineveh and preaching to them, and then the Ninevites miraculously repenting. In that chapter, we learn that taking God at his word means obeying and transforming. Obeying and transforming. And now that we've come to the final chapter of Jonah and the conclusion of this story, Nineveh has just repented, God relented of the disaster, one might think that we would be done. But now we see Jonah's response because Jonah has been the central character through this entire story. We followed him for most of the story, except for when we read what happened to the Ninevites in chapter 3. But we'll see in these upcoming verses that even though Jonah is the central character, God is still the main character. Since God is the main character, there is one final lesson that God has to teach Jonah, and that is about self-righteous anger and the Lord's sovereignty. Ultimately, I'm hoping today that we will learn from chapter 4 of Jonah that the Lord's sovereignty leaves no room for self-righteous anger. The Lord's sovereignty leaves no room for self-righteous anger. So we start off right off the bat with seeing that God's decision to not overthrow Nineveh displeased Jonah exceedingly. And now the, the Hebrew for this phrase literally reads as, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Now, I think it's important to remind ourselves what exactly we're talking about here. Jonah has just witnessed a mass repentance of an entire city of the people of Nineveh who have sworn to put aside their evil ways, to put aside the violence that is in their hands, and yet Jonah is angry. He views what happens as evil. And this would be setting off some alarms for us, right? How could Jonah, a prophet of the Lord, see a mass repentance like this as evil? Not just, oh, I wish the repentance was bigger, or oh, I wish it would have happened sooner. No, he views it as evil which is the complete opposite of what it actually is. Jesus says that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So with this entire city of around 120,000 people repenting, there must be an absolute crazy celebration going on in the heavens. Picture an amazing celebration with billions of angels rejoicing and then contrast it with Jonah who views it as exceedingly 
evil. In verses 2 to 3, Jonah prays to God to explain his reasoning for why he views the Lord's deliverance of Nineveh as extremely evil. And before we read his prayer, I think it's important to mention he is praying, right? This is kind of a step up from chapter 1 where the Lord told him what to do and he just booked it, right? At least he's praying. So half a step forward, we'll say. Look at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O God, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Do you see the perspective that Jonah's taking here in this prayer? It's all about himself. He says, is this not what I said when I was yet in this country? Which, you know, kind of sounds like, I knew this would happen. Or that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, you know, kind of like making excuses for himself. Jonah is resting on here what he deems as righteous. He's relying on his own perspective, his own self-righteousness instead of the Lord's. Obviously, God pitying an entire city is righteousness, but Jonah sees it differently because he's looking at it from his own perspective. So what exactly was Jonah expecting that he is now upset about? Look at the second half of verse 2. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Seems like the main issue that Jonah has here is with God, specifically God's character. And specifically God's character of being gracious and merciful, which that description of God has been seen many times throughout the Bible, most notably in Psalm 86, which says, But you, O Lord, are God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, these descriptions feel like they should be celebrated, right? The fact that God is merciful and gracious, those are good things. And let's not forget, Jonah literally prayed to God, praising him for those same attributes in chapter 2 when he was in the fish. Okay, so maybe it's not God that Jonah has the problem with. Maybe it's not God's character that Jonah has a problem with. So then maybe... It's not specifically God's mercy and grace that Jonah has an issue with. It's the recipient of that mercy and grace, which is the Ninevites. Jonah doesn't think that the Ninevites should have received God's mercy and grace. Remember that Nineveh was a city in Assyria, a pretty big city in Assyria, which was a firm enemy of Jonah's Israel. When Jonah was first called to preach against the Ninevites, one would think he would be excited. He gets to go and preach the destruction of his enemy, see it firsthand. But instead of destruction, Jonah witnessed the opposite. He saw a mass repentance and God relenting from this disaster. And Jonah himself, he knew this would happen because he knew that the Lord was merciful and gracious. But he also knew that Since Nineveh is an enemy of Israel, good news for Nineveh could possibly mean bad news for Israel. If Nineveh repents, if God relents, if they grow in power, if they get more soldiers, etc., they could be a real issue for his home country. Maybe this mass repentance would lead to Nineveh growing stronger and overthrowing Israel, and Jonah himself would have a hand in it. 
Because of all of that, Jonah isn't happy. He doesn't like this. And he doesn't like it so much, he wants to die. Look at verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Don't be confused. Jonah would rather die than see the Ninevites be treated to the mercy and grace of God. Or, as one commentator put it, Jonah cannot comprehend God's mercy being given to another for another's sake. Now, this is something, unfortunately, that becomes kind of a theme in the Bible. We see Jewish believers in the New Testament confused about how God could show mercy and grace towards the non-Jewish Gentiles. That type of self-righteousness and even jealousy is unfortunately something that God's followers deal with throughout the Bible. God has always been one to love unconditionally and to let his love spread beyond simple bias of his people. Even now, today, God's mercy through his gospel is available to all who believe, no matter who that recipient may be. And yet, I don't think I need to bring examples for us all here today to know that some people aren't happy with that. Jonah being upset here is almost childish, right? This is like an only child seeing their parents love their second born and being so upset that they want to die. Or this is like a college student seeing another student take up a professor's uh, office hours, right? Or seeing a coworker being promoted to your same level. Or, let's be honest here, seeing another team win the Super Bowl when Patriots have six wins. Like, we can let other people have it, right? Or even seeing another church member talk to Stephen downstairs after service. We all love God's mercy and grace when it is given to us and when it's given to those we like, but what about when it's given to others? What if someone wronged you, even greatly wronged you, and then repented and believed? Would you be mad? Would you rejoice? Or what about the classic example that has been thrown around for years and years? What if a murderer accepted Christ on his deathbed? seconds before death. They lived a life full of causing others misery and pain, and then the Lord grants them repentance and they are saved. How does that make you feel? Now that classic example is actually quite true. Let's not forget that most of the New Testament was written by Paul, who was a terrible person before repenting and converting. The book of Acts says that Paul, quote, ravaged the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. The book of Acts also says that he committed threats and even murder against the disciples of the Lord. He persecuted Christians at the highest level he could. And yet the Lord saved him. And even went so far as to say of Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and children of Israel. This murderer and prosecutor of the church transformed into a chosen instrument by God for his glory and the good of his people. Even today, as we read and are inspired by Paul's words in the Bible. 
And it's written that Christians in that day, they were scared. They were confused. They didn't want to believe it. They had heard of the things that Paul had done. But yet they had to trust in the Lord's mercy and grace. And look at how much Paul has blessed the church. Look at how much God redeemed him. So allowing some who we don't like to repent and believe is not just something the Lord can do. It's something that the Lord has done and will continue to do. If we are angry about that, like Jonah was, then we need to check if we are relying on our own self-righteousness or if we are relying that on the fact that salvation belongs to the Lord and he can give it to whomever he pleases. Now, thankfully, God teaches this to Jonah through an object lesson. God doesn't leave Jonah. He doesn't punish Jonah. He doesn't strike Jonah dead on the spot. He is incredibly patient with Jonah in his response. Praise God that even when we are impatient and don't get what he is trying to say, he is patient. And when we are angry in our self-righteousness, he does not fall down to our level, but instead humbles us with his grace. Let's look at God's response in verses 4 through 9. And this is right after Jonah says that he is angry enough to die because Jonah decided, because God decided to spare the Ninevites. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Now, first off, we see here that Jonah went out of the city to go watch and see what would happen. Now, obviously, the fact that he left the city means that he was at one point in the city, which means that he saw this mass repentance firsthand with his own eyes. But Jonah goes out and watches the city to, quote, see what would become of it. If you remember last week, this is kind of the same attitude that the Ninevites had, right? The Ninevites had the who knows argument. Right? They said, well, let's repent, let's turn away from our evil ways, and who knows, God might relent of the disaster. But now Jonah is questioning whether God will relent from his relenting and end up destroying Nineveh anyway. Even though Jonah knows that God is merciful and gracious, he's still hoping that God will end up doing what Jonah wants, even though it's against God's character. You see the, the, the self-righteousness and arrogance here? Even though God has said he would relent, Jonah wants to sit and watch the situation unfold just so he can continue to be angry. Every second God doesn't destroy Nineveh, Jonah gets angrier and angrier because he's not getting what he wants. And I think sometimes we can do that too. We like to sit in our anger. I'll be completely honest here. When I turn on the news and see what's happening, 
they just want to make you angry, right? And it's, it's not just, it's not about picking sides. It's not about picking political aisles. They just want you to be angry so you continue to watch. But we like that anger, right? We like thinking someone else is wrong and I'm right. We like seeing people on the news say, so-and-so's party is destroying this country because we like thinking to ourselves, my party wouldn't do that. Or we like criticizing decisions that schools or teachers make, thinking we know better, and, you know, schools and teachers have to cater to hundreds of children. Or we complain about movies or TV shows saying how awful it is, even though no one's forcing us to watch them. And hundreds of thousands of people worked very hard on it. Or we even like being upset about the performance of football players, thinking we could do better. Oh, they should have done this. Oh, why didn't they do that? We like being angry because we like feeling that we're right and someone else is wrong. But God's response to us is, do you do well to be angry? Does it benefit us in any way to be self-righteously upset other than inflating our own egos? Let's see God's object lesson here and find out. So Jonah is watching the city in an angry huff, and it's extremely hot out. God appoints a plant to come up and provide some shade. This obviously makes Jonah pretty happy. He has some nice shade. And then the next day, God appoints a worm to eat and destroy the plant, and that shade is gone. A scorching wind is appointed, and Jonah is upset again. And listen, I know what you're all thinking. After reading that story, you're all wondering, Neil, what was the plant? What was it? What type of plant was it? Thankfully, I did hours and hours of research to figure it out for you guys. And it's most likely like a, a gourd plant, you know, like a pumpkin or a big squash or cucumber. So pretty thick, it would have provided some good shade. Now that we're past that, we can finally get to the lesson. Now, God is being more than gracious here, right? He's not letting Jonah just sit in his anger. He's going to grow him. Make no mistake, this is God doing this. The text says that God appointed the plant, that God appointed a worm, that God appointed a scorching hot wind. And this is exactly how the fish is described in chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. All of this is very clearly to show us that within this story, God is totally in control. And he is guiding Jonah towards a certain outcome, which is hopefully repentance and growth. Now, the text says that the shade given by the plant saved Jonah from his discomfort. And then Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. That Hebrew phrase for saved from his discomfort could also mean delivered from his discomfort. And you may also notice that in the beginning of chapter 6, the Lord is in all caps. This is because the writer is using God's divine and sacred name, Yahweh, which is also used to convey God's mercy and deliverance. This simple act of God providing a plant for deliverance from the heat is from the characteristic of deliverer that God uses to save us from our sins or deliver us from evil. A merciful deliverer is simply who God is, whether it's with a plant to provide some shade or with us today with his gospel. It's the same character. But look at how quickly and insanely quickly Jonah's mood changes, right? He goes from being angry enough to literally die 
to being exceedingly glad because of the plant. Think of the contrast here. Jonah is angry enough to die because a city of thousands of people repented and looked to God. But then he gets exceedingly glad because of a little bit of shade and comfort. There's so many implications of this from Jonah's pride or his inability to care for others, but I think the biggest issue here is that he gets angry over a godly victory and is extremely happy when it's a personal victory. This is very clearly an incredible feat with 120,000 people repenting and turning from their evil. 120,000 souls that were once separated from God and now have the chance to be reunited with their Heavenly Father. Even setting that aside, even if this is just like a fluke and the next day they decide to go right back to it, they have decided on a citywide level to put aside their evil ways and violence. That's incredible. But Jonah cannot see past himself. He cannot get out of his own way. This is why he's happy when he gets a small benefit, but is angry when others get a huge benefit. So, just as God appoints the plant to come, God appoints the plant to die by a worm. And as the sun rises and the heat increases, God appoints a scorching hot wind to the mix. Now, it's not just shade that Jonah needs, it's actual deliverance. Now, by my count, Jonah has been watching Nineveh now for at least a day outside. He's right outside the city, so he would have access to food and water and whatnot, but he wants a perfect viewpoint, you know, just in case the Lord does what he wants. Now, but now this is, this is unsustainable. The scorching hot wind, the sun, the, the plant with the shade is gone. Jonah will have to make a decision on whether or not he continues to watch the city in anger or if he will die. The text says he's starting to get faint from the heat, and he asks that he would die. He doesn't want to leave. He doesn't want to relent. He doesn't want to give up. Jonah was red hot with anger, just as the red hot heat from the sun beat down on him. He knew that if he stayed out anymore, he would die, and he was fine with that. But our God is unrelenting as well. Our God does not leave until his purposes are accomplished. Jonah might think that he is the only unmovable force here, but he's about to learn that in a one-on-one with God, God never relents from his purposes. So let's see God's response, starting in verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor which did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God tells Jonah that just as Jonah didn't bring the plant into existence, he cannot be upset that the plant goes away. It was a plant with a lifespan of one day. It was without personality, characteristics, or soul. Compared to the 120,000 plus Ninevites and cattle who are clearly of much more value. If Jonah can pity an entire plant that's gone in a day, why can't God pity an entire city? An entire city full of people who are made in God's image, who are created to reflect and worship him. The plant wasn't even created by Jonah. Jonah only just slightly benefited from it. God is making this whole issue about 
pitying and compassion. And we know that our God is compassionate as well. This is something that we've seen. In Matthew 9, Jesus sees the crowds, and Matthew writes, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his forest, into his harvest, rather. In contrast, compared to Jesus, Jonah is not pitying the Ninevites because he doesn't like them. That's it. Because he, this one person, has a dislike against them. And honestly, I hate to say it, but I think we have this issue a lot as well. Not pitying those who we are supposed to pity. How often do we dehumanize those that we dislike or who are different than us? Think about how you, how you talk about or think about other image bearers of your God. Do you use racist or sexist remarks to degrade them? Do you call them idiot or stupid when they just make a simple mistake? Do you look down on them because they, don't, they aren't you or don't act like you? Do you know that we will be judged for our speech and our love for others? Proverbs 15 says, A gentle tongue is full of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Are you gentle with your tongue or perverse? But not only that, how much do we refuse pity for those who are different than us? Not just not give pity, but refuse pity to those who are different than us. Who among us would we look down on that Jesus would walk straight to? The lame, the sick, the immigrant? I know that there is great sadness among women or the LGBT community whenever laws are passed which either take away rights for abortion or uh, protections for the gay community. And as Christians, we believe and uphold God's law for reproduction and marriage, but that doesn't mean that we have to treat women or the LGBT community poorly. If a law is passed that more closely resembles God's law, then we should not be all proud with the attitude that we won and they lost. We should be kind to them in their sadness, and encourage them with the hope of Christ. It's not a competition. Jesus talked to and listened to those who were prostitutes and sinners. He treated them kindly and with love. How do we expect the world to see us reflect God's love when, like Jonah, we so often reflect our own hate? And this is, this is personal to me, because I have had good friends in college came to church with me every week, prayed with them, studied the Bible with them, and they left the faith because Christians were self-righteous rather than humble, insulting rather than lifting up, and vile rather than loving. Oh, church, let us not be that. Let us seek to confidently and radically reflect Christ by putting his image bearers before ourselves to listen before speaking and to lead others to God rather than pushing them away from ourselves. Oh, that we would not have the attitude of Jonah in this chapter. Now back to our text, God says that the Ninevites do not know their right hand from their left. 
Now, honestly, I, I don't think that this is God saying that the Ninevites literally didn't know which hand was the right one. Because I'm sure, like many of you, I can just go like this and find out for myself, right? But also, you know, the Ninevites had an entire city, right? They had an economy. They had infrastructure. They, they're smart enough to know which hand is right from the left. But what I think God is talking about here is that morally, they didn't know their right hand from their left. They didn't know any better. When they repented in the last chapter, they said that they would put aside the violence that is in their hands, that they would put aside their evil ways, right? Which, you know, infers that this was a widespread problem that everyone knew about. Not only that, but they didn't know God. These Ninevites didn't have the relationship with God that Israel did. But instead of being upset that they don't know how to be, God instead acts out in pity and love. And if we're supposed to act more like Christ, we have to act with that pity and love. And why? Because just like the Ninevites, just like Paul, just like all the sinners, we were sinners too. We were separated from God. We needed Him to save us. We didn't do it ourselves. We were evil. There was violence in our hands. We were lost. We were wrong. We were on a path to destruction. As 1 John says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love and patience is what God has given us, and he has called us to give that love and patience to others. And God even mentions cattle in these verses, right? The last couple of words, he thinks Jonah isn't going to have pity on human beings. At least, at the very least, he should have pity on a couple of cows who literally don't know any better, right? This might be a bit of a stretch, but how many of us tear up at, you know, puppy adoption videos online and yet don't get sad over the horrible mistreatment of human beings across the globe. With all of this, all of this, God is teaching Jonah that salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is good. Because God is not us. He's better than us. If salvation belonged to Jonah, you and I both know he wouldn't have even thought about pitying the Ninevites or giving them repentance. In the same way, if salvation belonged to us, I'm sure there were those that we wouldn't have pity on either. God is merciful and gracious and has pity on his creation when we very often do not. God gives us second chances when we barely give others one. God creates and sustains us when we hate and bring down others. There is no room for our self-righteous anger with God's sovereignty because God's sovereignty is God's, not ours. It does not do well to be angry. It does, however, do well to care and love for his image bearers well, because that's what we were called to do. So in this finale of Jonah, in this final chapter, in these final verses, Jonah is finally learning the lesson that so many before him have learned. 
Back in chapter 1, the sailors on the boat learned to fear the Lord because of the great storm that was called upon them by Jonah's disobedience. The captain of the boat learned to cry out to the Lord, and the sailors learned to fear the Lord exceedingly. They learned that salvation belongs to the Lord. So they needed to seek the Lord for that salvation. Or the king of Nineveh, back in the last chapter, learned that repentance needed to be towards God because God was the one that had the power to relent. He didn't try to butter up Jonah or convince Jonah to save him. He knew that the Lord was the one who they needed to repent to. He was the one who had the power to save. And yet today, are we going to learn that same lesson too? That the Lord alone has the power to save because salvation belongs to him? We can't save others. We are full of sin. We were separated from a holy God because of our transgressions and the transgressions inherited to us by Adam and Eve. There's no way for us to get to a holy God with our unholiness. So we needed another way. And that other way came down to earth in human form as Jesus Christ. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. He lived a life without sin, an example of how to reflect God well, to treat others well, and to worship God with our heart, mind, and soul. And we'll see that Jesus in our next series. Because Jesus was without sin, he could take all punishment for sin, which was eternal death. But he defeated death, rising from the grave in three days. And now for those who repent and turn away from their sin and believe in Christ's victory, then they are given the Holy Spirit to regenerate them from within and sanctify them day by day, turning them into a better reflection of their holy creator, more patient, more loving. So if you take anything from the book of Jonah, it's that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord, so we need to fear him, not just intellectually, but submitting to his lordship with our whole being, as we learn from chapter 1. Salvation belongs to the Lord, so he alone has the power to save, as we, turn, as we learned in chapter 2. Just as Jonah was at God's mercy in the belly of the fish, so are we when we are in the depths of our sin. Salvation belongs to the Lord, so we need to take him at his word, which means obeying and tra- letting it transform us, as we learned in chapter 3. And now in chapter 4. We learn that salvation belongs to the Lord. So it does not do well to be angry in self-righteousness. This chapter and this entire book of Jonah ends with a question. Look at verse 11 one last time with me. God says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? That's it. It ends there. We don't get to hear Jonah's response. We don't know what happens next. To be completely honest, I've been reading this book of Jonah for a long time, and I don't even feel confident assuming what would happen next. I wouldn't feel confident giving you an assumption. The way this book ends is no accident. We are supposed to read this question and ponder it. So church, I ask you, should God pity Nineveh? Yes, because that's who God is. He doesn't have to pity him. 
They transgressed against him. They were evil, but yet so were we. But just as they did, just as we did, they repented from their sin and turned to God instead. God's divine grace and divine mercy makes no sense to us. It does not make sense that God should pity his creation that sins against him. It makes no sense that God would make us his enemies into his children. It does not make sense that he would die a sinner's death in a sinner's place when he was without sin. And yet he did that because he loves us. That's who he is. God is love. Paul, Paul who was a murderous man against the church. Paul who was made into a new creation, made into a child of God, a chosen instrument. Paul wrote, In Romans, God showed his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So how do you respond to God's immense love, mercy, and grace, especially when it is given to others and especially when it is given to those who you might not like? Do you rejoice at how great your God is? Do you fear him and submit to his word? Do you cry out to him knowing that salvation is his alone? So the question is, will we humble ourselves like the sailors or the Ninevites or will we exalt ourselves with self-righteous anger that does not do well like Jonah? Let's close with the proper response to the fact that salvation belongs to the Lord. In Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12, we see a glorious vision of the future. The book of Revelation says, After this I looked, And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord God, salvation belongs to you. Salvation belongs to you because you are the one who bought it for us. Lord, we thank you that salvation belongs to you, that you can choose to save who you choose. You do not need our permission, Lord. But you graciously and mercifully welcome us into your family to transform us, to sanctify us, to love us. Oh God, help us to love others as you love us. Let us radically show mercy and grace. Let us love others as you love us, Lord. And let us worship you, for you are worthy of our worship. In Christ's name, amen.